What's up, y'all? Good morning. Welcome to the Story Church. If we haven't met yet, my name is Dylan Braddock, and I serve as a student coordinator. And we are so glad you're joining us in worship today, whether you're here in person or in line. We're just so glad you're here with us. Um, if you haven't noticed, it's been a pretty crazy like last two weeks for our next-gen ministry. Uh, two weeks ago, we had our first ever vacation Bible school. And for those of you who grew up in church, you know how big of a deal this is. This is like the thing of the summer. And we had like 70 kids and youth and volunteers here all week running VBS, which was incredible. And after that, we had an apologetics camp afterwards for high school students to stay for two or three hours and talk about Jesus, which was really cool. And this week, we had our second annual lake retreat. So I was actually at the lake all week, which was a blast. We got a little sunburned, but we got a lot of Jesus, so I feel like it was worth it. Um, but the theme of the week was direct message. And all we're really talking about is what does real faith look like? Because if there was one thing I was reminded of over the past two or three weeks, is that this new generation, one thing they really, really hate and can't stand is people being fake. Right, and we all know this, no one likes to be around fake people, but these students, they really hate it. Like they wanna know if I'm wearing the real Yeezys or the fake ones. They wanna know if I'm gonna be a real friend that'll be there for them or someone who's gonna stab them in the back later on. And when it comes to adults, they wanna know if you're there because you really love them and care about them or you're just there because you have to be to collect a check or whatever it might be. Um, but this generation, this desire for a real faith extends to Jesus too. Like they're no longer confident with the church answers. They want more than the church answers. They want to know, is this Jesus thing the real deal? Or is it just like every faith out there? Because if it is, then what's the point of going to church? These are the questions that they are asking. And that's why I'm super glad that we're launching into this new sermon series over the next three weeks called the, um, through the book of James. And it is called Less Talking, More Walking, From Dead Religion to Dynamic Faith. So if you asked me to line up all the books in the New Testament in a line and said, which one doesn't look like the other, the first one I'd point out would be Revelation. Okay, that's an easy one. But secondly, if you gave me a second choice, I think I might go with James. James is a very unique letter in our Bible, and it's actually one of the most controversial. You, might, you may not know this, but Martin Luther, the very famous church reformer, actually had beef with the book of James. He had this quote where he said, therefore, St. James's epistle, which means his letter, so James's letter is really an epistle of straw compared to the others for it has nothing of the nature of the gospel about it. Wow, that's a pretty bold statement, right? To say a book of our Bible has nothing to do with the gospel. Luther really came out swinging here, and he had three main issues with the book of James that I'm really briefly gonna go over. The first thing he was hung up on is that the name of Jesus is only used twice in the book. Okay, that seems kind of like a small thing. I, th I think we can get past that, right? His second concern was that it seemed to contradict other parts of the Bible. So if uh, Martin Luther had a life verse or a tattoo, which I don't think he would, it would be uh, Ephesians 2, 8 through 9. And that is, for it, has been, for, you have been saved, or, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it is a gift of God, 
not by works, so that no one can boast. A really good verse. Like, I would recommend anyone who's memorizing scripture to memorize this verse, because it really explains grace very well. But when Martin Luther read a verse like in James 2.17, which says, faith by itself, if it's not accompanied by action, is dead, he was worried people would get confused. He was worried that you had to pick either Paul or James and couldn't have both of them. And this led to his main worry, which was that the church leadership at the time was using the book of James to create corruption and sell things like indulgences, which he knew were bad news. Now, Luther never got so angry that James was axed from our Bibles. But over the next few weeks, I want us to really consider this question. Was Luther right? Is this letter from James really a letter of straw? And when I say straw, I'm not saying it's uninspired or unauthentic, because as Christians, we believe that all of God's word is inspired, and all of God's word is God-breathed and relevant to us. But what I want us to consider is how does James present the gospel of Jesus? How does James present the gospel? So beyond just the adversaries, another reason that James is so fascinating is because of the author. Did you know James was actually Jesus's little brother? He was. I mean, he wasn't his like physical brother because Jesus's dad was God and the brother's dad was Joseph. So that's kind of weird, but they had the same mother, right? He had four little brothers and James was the oldest. So who in here has an older sibling? About half of us? Okay. Uh, Older siblings can be really annoying, right? Like they can be infuriating uh, because they think they're the first. They think they're God's gift to this earth. They believe that they were the first. They were mom and dad's favorite and you'll never live up to them. How do I know this? Because I am a big brother. (laughs) And that's why I view my sister sometimes. I'm just kidding. (laughs) But um, imagine, imagine you're a little brother, a little sibling, and your older sibling isn't only the first. He isn't only mom and dad's favorite. He isn't only perfect, but he's God and human flesh, right? Like trying to live, try to live under that big brother's shadow. It was probably really difficult for James and the brothers. And we actually see this play out in the Gospels. In Mark 3, 21, Jesus' brothers actually try to arrest him or hold him back because they think he's crazy. And later on in John 7, 5, the writer straight up says, for even his own brothers didn't believe him. So how does James go from this guy who mocks Jesus and doesn't believe in him to eventually writing a book of the Bible? Well, in 1 Corinthians 15, 7, it tells us after Jesus died and rose again, he appeared to a few people. First, he appeared to Peter. Then he appeared to the disciples. Then he appeared to 500 others and eventually uh, Paul. But he also specifically sought out James. James was one of the people that Jesus appeared to after he rose from the dead. And this encounter with the resurrected Savior forever changed James's life. How do we know this? Well, first off, in the introduction to this book, in James chapter 1, James doesn't introduce himself as Jesus's little brother. He introduces himself as a servant of Jesus. What a radical shift, going from the little brother who is always mad to describing yourself as a servant of Christ. And because of this, James became a leader in the early church in Jerusalem, and he was eventually 
killed for his faith. So another fascinating thing about James is he had two nicknames. The first nickname was James the Just. That has a really nice ring to it, right? Like who wouldn't want the nickname the Just? Because he was wise, he had good discernment, and he cared for the poor and vulnerable. But does anyone know James' second nickname? Someone in the last service knew it. So I want to see if anyone else knows. Anyone know James' other nickname? Camel Knees. There you go. James Camel Knees. That's a pretty lame nickname, right? Like no one wants to be called Camel Knees. But but once you realize why he was called that, it's actually kind of cool. So Eusebius, a church historian, gave us this explanation. He says, and he, James was in the habit of entering alone into the temple and was frequently found upon his knees begging forgiveness for the people so that his knees became hard like those of a camel in consequence of his constantly bending them in his worship of God and asking for the forgiveness of people. So James was on his knees so much in prayer that they literally became calloused. Yeah, it's kind of a lame nickname, but it speaks to a really pure heart. Because when James was younger, I bet he talked a lot of smack, like little brothers do. But as James got older, like most of us, he realized that I need to do less talking and I need to spend more time on my knees in prayer. So this letter that we have from James was written between 50 and 60 AD, to a Jewish population that spread all throughout Rome. And this letter is a little different than most of Paul's letters because Paul's letters are written to specific churches and specific cities or towns. But James is really written to everyone in the Roman Empire who is struggling with living an authentic faith in an increasingly hostile world. Pretty relevant, right? So let's open James chapter one and see what old Camel needs has to say for himself. That's the last time I'll say the nickname, I promise. Um, But go ahead and flip open to James chapter one, and we're gonna start in verse 22. If you have the Pew Bibles, it's page 1722. I'll save you some time. (laughs) But I'm gonna go ahead and pick up in verse 22. So James says, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. All right, we gotta pause there because you'll see in James that he like hits you in the teeth. James does not hold punches. He just goes at it. And he is saying that if you want to live a dynamic faith, you can't just hear the word, but you got to do it. And this reminded me of a video I saw a few years ago from famous Transformers actor uh, Shia LaBeouf. Do you guys remember this? The Just Do It video? If you haven't seen it, basically, Shyla stands in front of a green screen for a minute and 30 seconds and just yells, just do it. And he's just trying to get you, like, get off your butt and follow your dreams or whatever. But when I read James, I hear, like, Shia LaBeouf's energy and his passion because I think James has this same sense of urgency. So with that in mind, let's keep reading. So verse 22, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourself, but just Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. So in this passage, James describes one of the biggest pathways to dead religion 
both in his time and our time today. And it is self-deception. Self-deception. This is a phenomenon where we subconsciously lie to ourselves and believe something that is contrary to the truth. And you guys have seen this play out. It has kind of two different forms of expressions, two different styles of lies. The first is the lie that makes us believe we are better than we really are. It makes us think we are perfect and we are more capable at doing things than we actually can. But the second and kind of opposite side of self-deception is us making us think we are damaged goods. We are incapable of rising above our circumstances. We're stuck. And sometimes the crazy thing about self-deception is we can believe both of these lies at the same time. That's how sneaky it is. For example, um, think about like a toxic relationship, right? And you might be talking to a friend and he might be like, man, I could do so much better than her. I should break up with her and find someone else. And then five minutes later, he says, man, if I break up with her, I'll always be alone. I'll never find anyone ever again. And this is a way that both of these lies can be in, in our mind at the same time. But we have all seen self-deception. I mean, think about that person at your office or on your friend group that always wears Lululemon, but you know they're never working out, right? The, the, the clothing makes, it, it makes them feel like they're living a healthy lifestyle, but we know what's really going on. Or think about the girl, once again, who, who says her boyfriend loves her and they have a future together, even though he's already cheated on her and tried to break up with her three or four times. Like, that's not going anywhere. Or maybe more problematic, think about the alcoholic who binge drinks every single weekend, but still thinks he has it all together. These are all forms of self-deception. We think one thing, but there's really something else going on. And self-deception is ultimately a sin because it is a rejection of God and a rejection of truth. In John 14, 6, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So if we are recoiling against truth, we are ultimately rejecting God. When I look back on my own life, the biggest period of self-deception for me was actually when I was in seminary, when I was going to school to learn about Jesus. Every time I told people I was going to seminary, they would often come back with the joke, oh, you mean cemetery, the place where your faith is gonna die. <laughs> and I would kind of laugh it off and think that's kind of rude. But there was some truth to their joke because seminary is a place where self-deception runs rampant. I mean, think about it. For eight to 12 hours a day, you're in class, reading your Bible, reading spiritual classics, and reading church history. So you start to build up this image in your head that like, I am the perfect Christian. I have it all together. I understand this passage. They don't fully understand it because they don't know Greek and Hebrew like I do, right? And you, you lie to yourself and think, man, I have it all together. But at the same time, how often was I actually reading the Bible for my own personal beneficial use? How often was I actually spending time in real prayer? How often was I leaving the classroom and discipling someone or sharing the gospel? I'm embarrassed to say it was very rarely. You know, I had all the head knowledge. I knew all the right answers. I was doing a lot of talking, but very little walking. And this is why we as church people 
are very vulnerable to self-deception. It can sneak up on us and strangle our witness. James tells us as followers of Jesus, we deceive ourselves when we sit in church for year after year, hear sermon after sermon. You might even yell, amen, pastor, good word. But you never allow that word to impact or change your life. Another example of self-deception is you reading your Bible from cover to cover, but instead letting the Bible be a sword that pierces your own heart, you use it as a weapon to attack others. That is self-deception. It's a faith where it's all head knowledge and it never actually changes you. So this morning, I wanna briefly dive in to three ways in which self-deception um, shows up in our faith. So the first way is that self-deception erases our true identity. It erases our true identity. Remember the metaphor that James used? It's kind of a silly one, but he said, anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. This sounds silly, but we all do it. We all have moments of clarity when we see things for how they truly are, but then we walk away and we forget. The word face in verse 23 is more literally like natural face or face of birth. So when James is using it, I think he's talking about our identity, like what God sees when he looks at us. So what is our true identity as people? This is kind of like, a deep question, but I think we should consider it. What is our true identity? We first see it in Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, where it says, we are made in the image of God, male and female. When it says we are made in the image of God, that means me, that means you. That means people inside this building, that means people outside this building. Our friends, our enemies, Christians and non-Christians, all of our world, all of humanity was made in the image of God, which is great news. That means we're God's ambassadors and we have some of that divine image inside of us. But that's not the end of the story. You know how Genesis 3 picks up, right? Adam and Eve choose sin and they choose independence from God. And because of that, that image of God that's inside of us has been broken, right? It's been, it's been distorted, it hasn't been erased. It's no longer gone, but it is broken. And the only way it can be fixed is through Jesus, because in Jesus, we have the image of God who restores us. So I know that was a lot in one paragraph, so let me summarize it in three bullet points. One, we are all made in the image of God. Two, sin distorted this image, and we are broken. And three, Jesus saves and restores us. This is our true identity. All three of these things are true, and we have to remember that all three of them are true. The issue with self-deception is instead of realizing all three of these are truth, we fixate on the first one or the second one. So we think, man, I am made in the image of God. I am perfect. I am successful. I am comfortable. I am good. Or on the other hand, you think, man, I am broken. I can't do anything right. I am beyond repair. And both of these are incorrect views of our 
identity. When we lose our true identity, we're flung into this alternate reality where we either crucify or worship ourselves. And neither of those things are what God desired. So if self-deception erases this true identity, then obedience affirms it. Now, I know obedience isn't like a fun word. I don't think anyone outside the church loves the word obedience. And I understand why, because if you look at the world, whenever you're obedient to a broken worldview or a broken person or a broken system, it often leads to more brokenness. Like we have all put our faith in a person or a company or a political figure and been let down. We've all experienced that. But the difference between Christian obedience and worldly obedience is that in Christian obedience, you are being obedient to a perfect and all-loving God, one that's never going to let you down, one that will always lead to truth. And when we're obedient to this God, we're reminded of who we really are. So this morning, half of you in this room, you need to hear, you are not the second coming of Jesus. I know you think you're really great, but you're broken. The other half of you in this room need to hear, you are not broken beyond repair. God knits you together in your mother's womb. He knows the number of hairs on your head and he loves you. And he made you the way you are for a reason. We all need to be reminded of our true identity, that we are made in God's image. We've been broken but Jesus restores us. That is who God says we are. So self-deception erases our identity. And secondly, self-deception enslaves us. While self-deception might seem like the freedom to reinvent yourself, it really is just slavery and it puts you in to your own prison. Because when you weave these narratives, you're just becoming more enslaved to what others want you to be, to what your emotions want you to be, or to others who others think you should be. The worst part is no one is doing this to you, but in self-deception, you are the one enslaving yourselves. Pastor and theologian A.W. Tozer described it this way. He said, the self-deceiver is his own enemy and is working a fraud upon himself. He does not resist the deceit, but collaborates with it against himself. There is no struggle because the victim surrenders before the fight begins. He enjoys being deceived. How many of us here enjoy being deceived? I know initially we want to say no, but think about it. Think about the ways that we as Christians deceive ourselves. We believe that what we're doing right now, this is it. We're good. I'm perfect. We believe that if we just play these church games and show up every Sunday, we're all right. We believe that we can do whatever we want between Monday and Saturday, as long as we show up to church on Sunday, because that makes us a Christian. This might sound like freedom, the ability to live two different lives. But as someone who has tried that for a period of my life, let me tell you, it is slavery to a fantasy that will always catch up with you. And you might fool yourself, you might fool some of the people around you, but you will never fool God. He sees you as you truly are. So if self-deception enslaves us, then I would argue obedience frees us. 
This might seem like a paradox that obedience leads to freedom, but it isn't. Because if you are enslaved by your emotions, or you are enslaved by the rules of the world, are you enslaved by what other people think? You're gonna be constantly whipped back and forth because our world, we have constantly moving goalposts, right? It changes every single day. So if you're enslaving yourself to what the world says is true, then you're constantly gonna be bouncing back and forth. Every decision becomes complex and there's no longer black and white. Everything becomes gray. And young people are trying to navigate this world and they feel paralyzed because they don't know which direction to go. There are too many options. They're enslaved to the culture. But what is the alternative? I would argue that Jesus offers us his law, a law that never changes, a law that is consistent from the Old Testament to the New Testament, a law that was embodied by Jesus Christ himself, and a law that is simply said like this, love God and love your neighbor. This is freedom. Living under these rules leads you to happiness. So besides erasing erasing and enslaving, self-deception also stifles our growth. Once you've been chained to self-deception, it's impossible to see that God's way is better. It's impossible to see any reason to change. And this was my problem in seminary, right? I wasn't growing. I was staying stagnant in my faith because I believed I already had it all figured out. I believed I was already where God wanted me to be. And how often do we as the church get stuck in the same rut? I heard a football metaphor from a pastor one time that really helps explain this. And since Texans training camp started this weekend, I feel like I can use a football metaphor. Um, So I'm gonna go for it. So imagine you're at a football game, right? You're in the stands and you see the team in the huddle. The coach is with the team and he's giving them this really impassioned speech. He's telling them, come on, boys, go out there. You can do it. And he draws up the perfect play. He says, you go this way, you do this, you throw here will score a touchdown. The team runs out onto the field. They line up, they get ready to hike the ball, but they just stand there. They never actually run the play. I know, crazy, right? They never run the play. And then they just go back to the huddle 30 seconds later. And in the stands, you're like, okay, maybe there was a miscommunication. Maybe they forgot the play. And the coach once again gets in the huddle. He goes, all right, boys, here's the play. Let's run into their mouth, let's do it. And they go out there again. And the team lines up, and this time the quarterback kind of bends down. He says, hut, hut. But he never snaps the ball. They never run the play, and they just go back to the huddle. And if they did this two or three times, you as a fan would be like, what the heck are these guys doing? Like, what is the point of all this talk? There's, there's nothing happening. But so often I'm worried that this is the way the church looks to the outside world. You know, we come in here on Sundays. We hear a rah-rah speech from Pastor Eric. He encourages us. He gives us a play. He says, this week, I challenge you guys to do this. But then we leave church and we go back to our jobs and back to our careers and back to our homes. And we never actually run the play. We just kind of wait and come back to church next week and get a new play. But we never actually ran the first play. We never actually did anything. And this is a picture of self-deception. This 
is a dead religion. Self-deception keeps us stagnant, but obedience to God is the pathway to sanctification. And I know sanctification is like another big churchy word, but all it really means is holiness or being made more like Jesus. And this is the goal of the Christian life. Will it always be easy? No. In fact, when you look at scripture, the Holy Spirit often leads us to discomfort. It often asks us to do things we don't really want to do. I mean, look at Jesus. Two times he was obedient. One time it led him into a desert, and the other time it led him to the cross. Obedience is costly, but it's the best thing for us. So if we've seen what dead religion looks like, then what is dynamic faith? I would argue that James lays it out pretty clearly in chapter 1, verse 27. So go ahead and open your Bibles and head back there. So James says, Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless as this. All right, let's pause there. This is like a really awesome verse. Like James is laying it out straight for us. Remember, James knew Jesus his entire life. James watched Jesus grow up. James watched how Jesus walked around the neighborhood. James saw how Jesus treated his parents. And now James is saying, this is pure and faultless faith. Let's see what he says. It is to look after the orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. And in an increasingly complex world, James's answer is this. Look after the vulnerable and don't act like everyone else. You don't have to worry about the 613 laws in the Old Testament. All you have to do is love God and love others. You see, self-deception weaves this web of lies that tells us faith is all this stuff that doesn't matter. But obedience tells us that faith is caring for the vulnerable and not being polluted by the world. And James gives us two very real uh, examples, right? He says, care for the widows and care for the orphans. Now, I don't think that James gives us these two people just to say these are the only two that matters, but I think he's pointing out that you are called to care for the broken people and the broken places around you. We as Christians are called to care for the broken people and their broken places around us. In James's context, these were the widows, and orphans. Infanticide and brutal forms of abortion were very prevalent in the Roman Empire. I learned this week that most Roman families only wanted one child. They realized having multiple kids is a lot of work. So the goal was to have one, and the goal was to have a male. So when a female came first, or when you had multiple children, it was very common for them to want to get rid of these children. And the primary way they did that was through exposure. And this is about as bad as it sounds, but young parents would take their newborn children and dump them in dumps or fields and leave them there to be killed by the elements or wild animals. They would simply abandon their children. And there were stories of Christians from the first, second, and third centuries who would walk through these dumps and would walk through these fields and pick up the orphans and bring them into their homes. 
This made such a radical difference that the secular world even started to notice. And there's this really interesting quote from a, from a pagan emperor named Julian who reigned in 360 AD. And Julian was not a fan of Christians at all. In fact, he was trying to bring back pagan worship. But in a letter to one of his pagan priests, he said this about Christians. He said, for it is disgraceful that when no Jew ever has to beg, and the impious Christians support not only their own poor, but ours as well. Everyone is able to see that our people are in want of aid from us. So if you didn't catch it, Julian is mad that the Christians are doing such a good job of loving others. The Christians aren't only loving the people in their community, but they are taking care of the poor in general. And Julian is telling his pagan priests, like if you want our religion to catch on, we need to do the same thing. And historians all agree that the Christian care for the vulnerable is one of the main reasons Christianity flourished in the first four centuries. The world noticed what they were doing and it made a difference. So let me ask you, what do outsiders say when they look at our church today? What do they think about us? Do they think we're that football team that just gets in the huddle and never runs the play? Like, honestly, what do you think they think when they look at the church? I wish, I wish the secular world would say, man, I really don't like those Christians. I feel like they believe in a fairy tale God, but you know what? They're doing a really good job of emptying the foster care system. And they are really loving young single moms. And they are doing a really great job of taking care of the refugees. Like, I don't agree with their theology, but... I like the way they love people. What an incredible platform that would be for us to share the love of Jesus with others. And don't misunderstand me, this isn't a marketing tool, but James says this aligns with the heart of God. And let me tell you friends, God's heart is made clear in scripture, but we have to live this book out. It can't just sit in our nightstands or sit on our Instagram bios. If we want to take the world by notice, then we have to live an authentic, real faith, a faith that looks different from the world. As I said up top, when I talk to students, both in our church and churches around the state, the thing that really pushes them away from faith isn't the hostility of the world or social media or secular society. What really pushes them away from the faith is Christians who are fake. Christians who do a lot of talking and no walking. That's why they don't want to be here. Because they all have parents or friends or grandparents who play the church games their whole life, but never actually look like Jesus. Never actually step out of their comfort and love someone who looks different than them. In fact, these Christians look just like everyone else. And if we as Christians look like the world, then what's the point? We are living a dead religion. But on the other hand, what does dynamic faith look like? I think James explains it in chapter one, verse 27. And this isn't a command. It's not a prescription of what we have to do, but it's a description of what Christians should look like. It's a description of the fruit that comes from faith. We should be a people who move towards 
the vulnerable. We should be people who see broken places and broken people and seek to bring hope and peace because that is what Jesus did for each and every one of us. He saw that we were broken. And instead of saying distant, far away in heaven, he came down and lived with us and redeemed us. And now as Christ followers, we are called to go out into the world and do the same thing. So as we will see in this series, it is an oversimplification to say that James is all work and no faith. Because James knew he was saved by Jesus. He knew he was saved on the cross, by Jesus on the cross. But he also saw that Jesus was creating something new. And Jesus was inviting us to join him in this new mission. And for James, this meant he spent the rest of his life on his knees in prayer. What does this obedience look like for you? Maybe today, you just need to be honest with where you're at, where you're at with God. Maybe you need to say, God, I'm tired of playing the church games. Here's who I am. Save me. That's a great first step. Or maybe you're just now realizing that, man, I've been living under the yoke of self-deception and dead religion. It's time for me to break free of that and choose obedience to God. Once again, that is an incredible step. Or maybe you've already done both of those things and what you need to do is to move into the brokenness around you and deliver the hope of Jesus. Because I promise, when you love the unlovable, when you love the person who's inconvenient, when you love the person who's unbearable to be around, that is when the gospel comes alive. That is when God moves from a proposition to a person. Yes, every single one of us in this room are saved by grace through faith but you are saved for something. God saved you to go out into the world and to be his ambassador. The world has enough people talking, like me standing up here on the stage talking right now. We have enough of that. What we need are people who are going out and just doing it. People who are being the hands and feet of Christ in the world that so desperately needs it. If you wanna save your household, if you wanna save your office, if you wanna save your friend group, then be like Jesus and they will notice. Would y'all pray with me? Father God, I thank you for the book of James. I thank you for the ways in which it challenges and convicts me. God, I know that I am still a person who lives in self-deception. I deceive myself all the time, God, but I pray that your Holy Spirit would convict me and lead me to truth, God. I pray that instead of a guy standing up here on stage doing all the talking, that I would be a person who walks the walk. God, lead me to love the people around me this week in such an amazing way that they notice something is different. In Jesus' name, amen.